I think the thing with great books is it is a loaded term. And there are a lot of misconceptions about it. And I see this playing out a lot. Um, when I talk about the great books, and you know, some people may talk about them in a little bit different way, I'm, I'm thinking of the great books specifically in the Western civilization tradition that have stood the test of time, that have been foundational to all of our stories. And you know, there's lots of people who make lists of these books. You know, some include more and some include less. But they're books that are good books that nurture the human spirit and soul that tell us what it means to be a human, that have also built the foundation for all of the other stories that we also know. Welcome to Homeschool Conversations with Humility and Doxology, a series of interviews with real-life homeschool moms, dads, and other educators on all sorts of topics that affect our lives as homeschool parents. I'm Amy Sloan, a second-generation homeschool mom of five, and I am so delighted that you are here. Here on Homeschool Conversations, we'll discuss educational philosophy, family life, and more. Come chat with us. Hello, friends. Today, I am joined by my friend, Kristen Rudd, who actually has the distinction of being the first person I ever friended on Facebook that I didn't actually know in real life. <laughs> Kristen, <laughs> Kristen lives in Cary, North Carolina, and she is a homeschool mom by day, and by night, she's exhausted. She offers online literature and writing classes to high school students through kristenrudd.com. She's the founder of Piedmont Classical Forum. This is Epic, Everyday Ovid, and 100 Days of Dante. Kristen is a Searcy Institute certified master teacher and is currently pursuing a Master of Arts in Classical Teaching through the Templeton Honors College at Eastern University. And in her spare time, she lifts weights, eats tacos, and defends Dido, Queen of Carthage, to anyone who dares smack talk her. <laughs> You know, forget politics. That's right. <laughs> if you really want to get some good social media drama going on, you just, you know, tell Kristen and Nias and Dido weren't really married. I, I will argue about very few things, and that is one of them. <laughs> well, I'm so excited to get to chat with you today. My son gets to talk to you a couple times a week in his online classes, but this is the first time we've actually gotten to sit and talk. So, I would love it if you could start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your family and just how you came to start homeschooling in the beginning. Yeah, um, I have two children. My daughter is 17, she's a junior, and my son is 14 and he's a freshman. And we have been homeschooling the entire time from kindergarten on. Uh, when we first started homeschooling, we lived in San Francisco and uh, we're told how horrible and terrible the public schools are there. Uh, we had never planned on being homeschoolers. I'd never given it any thought. In fact, I said that I would never homeschool my children, um, which is just, God's really got a funny sense of humor. Um, but when we were looking at putting our daughter in kindergarten, we were doing all the research and we did our due diligence and we, we did interviews around at all the public schools. Um, San Francisco at the time had a lottery-based system. So you didn't go to your neighborhood school. You went, you put your top picks down. And if they sent you to one, they sent you to one. You really had no say. Um, so we did, we did our research and we looked into it and decided not to go through the process. We decided that in California, kindergarten is not compulsory, so there was no need to send her to school. And we didn't like the idea that kindergarten was a full day for five-year-old children. Um, it's a long time, a long time for them to be gone, 
a long time for them to be in school. And she's a super creative, energetic kid. And I didn't want to see um, an all-day school system kind of suck that out of her because I'd seen it happen with some other kids. So we said we would give it a year and we would homeschool for a year and reevaluate and see what we would do the next year. And it was really, really hard. <laughs> and everybody cried a lot. And it just, it was just felt like a disaster. Um, so we decided to keep doing it. We decided that's the best, the best thing to do. Um, we found a few more resources, got a little bit more support, and joined some homeschooling groups and kind of hodgepodged our way in. I think about maybe second grade, we found uh, The Well-Trained Mind, which was a you know, classical guidebook to how, to how to educate your child classically. And I kind of poured over that religiously and started following some of the suggestions in there. I found some curriculum to help me guide me through what we were to do. Um, that helped me. The biggest thing I think that did for me was help me see that I don't have to take it one year at a time. I can take a longer view of things. I don't have to get everything done in one year. I can take a longer view of cycles of history and cycles of science and just really slow down. And so that helped a lot. And we spent a lot of time just reading books on the couch, doing a lot of art projects, a lot of going to the park. It was fun. You know, I think back to those early years and I think we really probably did do a pretty good job. It's easy to look back and think, oh, I could do it so much better now. So we moved to North Carolina in 2014, and by that point, we just knew we were going to homeschool all the way through. Uh, I knew I wanted to homeschool my kids through high school, and so I, I joined the Cersei Apprenticeship because I didn't feel really equipped to teach classics to high school students. So I, I went through that program because I wanted to feel more equipped to teach my kids through high school, and here we are still doing it. They both are dancers, they both dance ballet. In fact, they're there right now. They dance five days a week, about four hours a day, sometimes six days a week, but five days a week, four hours a day. So they're gone during the day. So we, we put their, their homeschool in and around their ballet. So at this point, even if we had not started as homeschoolers, there's a very good chance that we would have ended up as homeschoolers. So that's us, that's what we do. Well, I love to hear how many different stories and sort of the different angles that bring people into homeschooling. And yet, as the stories at the beginning are often so different, a lot of times we kind of end up in the same place. So I would love to hear a little bit more about how your educational philosophy kind of grew and developed over those years. You know, you mentioned that it was relatively early on, I guess, but not right from the beginning that you were first introduced to classical um, education ideas. And then, of course, I'm sure it's grown and developed even more now that you have, have pursued that education on your own. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's been kind of hodgepodge. Um, we, I, just, I tell people we just tripped and fell into homeschooling because we never planned on doing it. I didn't really want to do it, but um, I knew that I thought it would be the best option for my kids. So I didn't really have a strong philosophy at first. I remember feeling like I was floundering. The first homeschool conference I went to, I remember being kind of inundated with all these homeschool philosophies and just feeling really overwhelmed. Like, how, I don't even know what these are. How do I pick? And there are some that appeal to me more than others. Uh, just, I think little pieces of all different kinds. It, it feels like there's, it, I'm trying to think back to what it was like. Uh, one of the things we had is in our homeschool group in San Francisco, we had a lot of unschoolers. So we were around a lot of unschoolers. And so that philosophy was kind of appealing to me. And we, we've tried things from different philosophies at different times. Uh, but I think when I found the classical education view, um, it just clicked. It just, it seemed to make sense. It seemed to be laid out pretty well with a goal in mind. And I'm, I think I'm a pretty type A person. I like to be organized. I like to know where I'm going. I like to have all my ducks in a row. I'm a huge planner. 
And that gave me a map that made sense. And the more we read and the more we studied, I think the more we just felt really comfortable in it. So I don't do a, spend a lot of time researching philosophies. Like I don't, I don't spend a lot of time looking into other things. I found my path. I'm just going to walk it. So um, there's a, probably a lot of other things I could learn from a lot of other philosophies like Montessori or Waldorf or more, more Charlotte Mason, um, which would be interesting. But I, I just kind of stick with what I know at this point. I'd like to tell new homeschool moms that you don't have to get married to your homeschool philosophy. You know, in those early years, like you were mentioning, you go to the conference or you start researching on the blogs, like what are the different approaches to homeschooling? And there can be so much pressure, like you have to figure it all out right, you know, right from the beginning. But sometimes it just takes you a little time to find your footing and find what works best for your family. And then you can just sort of put blinders on and do you. And we've tried, we've, we even tried like unschooling for a little while. Like we've tried a few different things. Like we, we've kind of jumped around and I think kids are resilient. Um, not that we should subject them to harsh treatment or anything like that, but children are resilient. And if you're moving in a place from love and you're, you care much about their education and you know, there's no one more anxious about their child's education than a homeschool parent. You know, we constantly second guess ourselves. Um, we always worry about whether we're doing a good enough job. It's just the biggest anxiety that we have. And that's one thing that I would like parents to do away with. Just trust your instincts, trust your gut. And we work hard. I mean, we work hard. There's people I think, well, they do a lot more than we do. Maybe I should be doing more, but you know, this is my family and this is how we're structured and this is what we can do. And this is the path we're walking and it's fine. Everybody's different. Well, there are a million and one things that I could and would love to chat with you about. (laughs) And we maybe will have to like, you know, put a pin in a future podcast season and talk again. But I thought today, let's chat a little bit about books and literature, something we both love and something that you are currently teaching. So I wanted to sort of start with the big picture. I'm a big picture person and I like to think first, what are we even talking about? Like, let's define our terms because especially in the classical world, like just terms get thrown around all the time and you don't always know what people mean by them. So let's just start real basic. Like, what do we even mean by the great books? And do you think there are any misconceptions around that term? I think the thing with great books is it is a loaded term. And there are a lot of misconceptions about it. And I see this playing out a lot. Um, when I talk about the great books and, you know, some people may talk about them in a little bit different way. I'm, I'm thinking of the great books specifically in the Western civilization tradition that have stood the test of time, that have been foundational to all of our stories. And, you know, there's lots of people who make lists of these books. You know, some include more and some include less. Um, but they're books that are good books that nurture the human spirit and soul, that tell us what it means to be a human, that have also built the foundation for all of the other stories that we also know. A lot of misconceptions about them are that we're saying that other books don't have any value. I've seen that a lot. And I don't think that that's what we're saying. We're saying that these are the great books and that there's always room for more of them. Um, But this is specifically of Western civilization. These aren't the great books of a Chinese civilization or of a South American tradition. Like, it's just this is a specific canon that we're talking about. And I've seen a lot of questions about whether or not we should be teaching them or what, what we should be teaching. For me, I've chosen to teach these. There's lots of things. There's so many things we could teach, and we have such limited time. So I decided to pick the best books that I thought I could teach from throughout history as far as we can find them. And I don't always stick to necessarily just to, you know, European 
civilization. So last year I taught ancient literature and I chose um, a book, the book of Job from the Bible, so from the Hebrew tradition. We did the Epic of Gilgamesh from the Sumerian Akkadian tradition. So we did, you know, poke around a little bit, but I think sometimes you just have to focus and you just have to pick what you think you can do with the limited time that you have. I don't know if that answers the question. It's such a difficult question to answer, I think. Yeah. You know, I thought I would just start with something real easy and simple. <laughs> find the great books and defend them. Come on. In 30 seconds. Let's go. Looking for a high school science curriculum that goes beyond just checking boxes off for a transcript? Today's podcast sponsor, Friendly Sciences, makes science accessible for any homeschool family. I recently reviewed their physical science, biology, and chemistry programs, but today, let me tell you especially how impressed I was by their friendly physical science curriculum. Friendly Physical Science communicates scientific ideas in an easy-to-read manner and gives opportunities to apply the concepts learned. But what really excited me were the unique design challenges. These challenges encourage the student to think critically and solve real-life problems. At one point, students have the opportunity to design, build, and test a series of rather complicated pulley challenges. How cool is that? Friendly Sciences curriculum makes science accessible while also equipping homeschool high school students for future higher level science study. Check out all Friendly Sciences has to offer at the link in the show notes or head over to humilityanddoxology.com to read my full review of Friendly Physical Science, Biology, and Chemistry. Yeah, I think though it's such a good point that we are finite. And when we try to push back against that and try to, you know, do all the things or be all the things or even teach all the things, having to accept the fact that we are limited is actually a very freeing concept. And it's not saying that, you know, there aren't things outside of ourselves, obviously, or outside of our, our what we've chosen to teach or to learn. But at some point, you just have to accept that you're not God, like you're not infinite. And so you have to be content with not knowing some things and, and simultaneously recognizing that you don't know them. Like just because you've studied these books doesn't mean you know all the books. Oh, no. Right. Yeah. I don't think one of the, I think the big, the big argument that I see that stems from why teach these books is, is twofold. People want to know that they matter. We want to know that we matter um, in this world to each other. And one of the arguments I see against teaching them is that we need to teach students books that help them know who they are, that speak to them, that help them tell their story. And I think that there's truth to that. There is, we need that. We need to be told who we are as a human. This is why we read fairy tales to our children. We need to know the story of our people. And I think in a country as diverse as ours, we don't have, we're less and less having a common story. And I want to teach things that bring us together as a people and don't divide us apart into our discrete little, little areas, right? It's important for us to tell our children the stories of our families. This is who you are. This is where you come from, good or bad. This is what makes who you are. And so when I teach the great books I'm doing, I'm trying to do one of two things. I'm trying to teach them books that do form a common foundation for who we are as an American people from the, the political tradition that we come from. And I think that they tell us who we are. I think if we read these books, they do tell us who we are. They might not tell us specifically who this individual is. It doesn't do that enough because it tells them about other people. And that's the other side. We want to read to find out who we are. That is a very beautiful thing when you read and you feel really seen. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I want that for my students and my children. 
But that's not the only reason that we should be reading, and that's not the only reason we should be teaching our children to read. We need to teach our children to love our neighbor and love their neighbor. And by reading, people who come from different eras and different perspectives help us do that. And so the Great Books does that as well. They also show us what it's like to see through other people's eyes, to see what it means to be someone from ancient Rome or ancient Greece or Sumeria or the medieval Italians. It, they, they help us see that kind of thing. And so I think they're a unifying force in that they do show us who we are and they do help us see other people as well. Well, you've already started to address it a little bit, but I'd love to dive a bit into how we can approach, you know, reading ourselves and then teaching the great books from a, and literature, you know, in general, from a position of humility. I find it very easy to be humbled <laughs> because I know how much I don't know. I know how much I haven't read. There's so much that I haven't read. I didn't grow up in a classical tradition. I'm a public school kid and I had some good teachers and we read some really good books um, that I remember and I remember the discussions really well. But there's so many books that I don't know. I was chatting with a friend this morning about the Shakespeare play Measure for Measure. And I'm not familiar with this play. And he said, well, you need to add it to the list. I'm like, I need to actually write this list down because there are so many things that I have not read that I want to read. Um, we do, you know, we're finite, we have very little time. And I want to reread things that I've read. So I feel like I, I, I can't get, how can I possibly be arrogant or proud about literature when I know that there's so much that I don't know and I have so much to learn. Even the things I feel like I know well, there's, there's depths that I haven't plumbed yet to understanding these works. And it's just fun, like we get to do this, like this is my job, okay. I know. It's the best. <laughs> it's, it's, also, it's really fun too. I mean, I am very thankful that I, I think I've, I've said this probably to you before, but I kind of look at my parents as they were homeschooling. I'm like, I think I was homeschooled classically, like before it was cool, before people were even talking about it. Like that was just sort of my experience, which I'm incredibly thankful for. And even so, like there are books that I know I've read and then I'll read them again, like in my twenties. And now I'm reading them again in my thirties. And it's, as if it's a different book in a way, like you're going deeper, but your life experience and your perspective is also different. So even a book you've read, you think, oh yeah, I've read that a couple times. You read it again and it's, it blows your mind again um, and affects you in a different way. makes you think about different questions. Well, oh yeah. Absolutely. What are those kinds of questions? Like what questions should we be asking and encouraging our children to ask as we're, you know, we're opening up a book together or they're reading a book and then we come together to talk about it. Like what kinds of questions should we be asking? That's a good question because I think a lot of people get, you know, if, if you're not a literature person, you kind of, what do I do? What do I ask? What do I say? I don't know how to discuss this. It's, it's really not difficult. There's a few basic questions you can ask of any story. It doesn't matter if it's a children's book or an ancient epic or a fantasy novel. It doesn't matter. Who is the story about? What does this person want? Why can't they have it? Those are the first three questions that we always ask. Who is this about? Tell me everything you know about them. What are they like? What do they look like? How do people talk to them? What do they say about themselves? Are they reliable? Are they not? Are they good? How do we know? What does the story say? What is it that they want? And if we can identify that, we can ask a question. What, what is the story about? Who is this person and what do they want? And that question gets answered in the climax of the story. And so we can, we can walk through the plot development very easily. We, we can walk through all the parts of the story very easily and find out what happens in the story. We talk about all the different characters, ask about any character, what they're like, how they interact with others, ask about where it's set, when is it set, what's going on, how does that inform the story? And then when you're done with all of that, then what is the story about? What is the story really talking about? And how do we know? 
And I find that when we just walk through those questions, they start to ask their own questions naturally. They start to pull things out on their own. They're able to see things that they didn't see before just by asking really good questions. Here's the story about what do they want? Why can't they have it? Do they get it or not? Why? And then what happens? Where is it set? What is the story about? And that's the themes. Just what is this? What is the story about? What, what universal elements? And what else can you tell me? What, what devices are used? Like symbolism can, can be easy to get into, but what, what is the, why is this, what does this mean in the story? Those can be asked about any story whatsoever. One of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation with you, and I'm so glad you expressed that so clearly and simply, is because a lot of times we start, um, there can be a tendency, I see a lot when I like read a, a blog post or something about like, here's how to talk about this book. It can be very focused on you as the reader and your personal experience from the get-go. Um, what did you think about this story? And did you like the main character? And um, and instead, to really come first and say, well, what does the book even say? What is the author saying? You know, let's first try to actually right. understand the story before we start spouting off all of our own opinions about it. I do ask them if they like the characters often. Um, like we did, we recently did uh, The Wife of Bath's Tale in Canterbury Tales, which the kids were very upset with because they don't like the knight at all. Because the knight, the knight has, has raped a woman and is sentenced to death, and Queen Guinevere pardons him if he can find out what women want in a year and a day. So he goes and he finds out what women want, and he comes back and he tells her. And the students were just really bothered by the fact that this rapist basically gets away with it, and they didn't like him. So we had to discuss, well, who is he, and what, why does he, why is he pardoned? What is going on? We, when we make, we make jokes, right, like, Queen Guinevere pardons him, like, right, yeah, this is clearly a work of fiction, you know, like, we make, we make jokes along the way. We don't take ourselves too seriously, but we ended up talking about how he was saved and he didn't deserve it. And he was saved by something he found completely repulsive. And this is a common theme. This shows up in story after story after story. And this is the human story. We are a people in desperate need of redemption and we don't deserve it. So how can we pass judgment on this night, despite how we feel about him, when we are in just as much need of salvation as he is? And so we're able to draw these things out. And so in that sense, what they think about the night doesn't really matter. It's, that's not the point of the story. So that's just as an example, but yeah. Well, some of us get really, really excited. I'm sure you can't tell who that would be. And <laughs> <laughs> now excitement can be good as a homeschool mom. Um, it can be my superpower, but it can also be a problem because I can get so excited that I start talking too much and I don't listen very well. And especially when we're, you know, wanting to talk about deeper issues with our older students um, and really draw them out to understanding and wisdom, um, I, I'll just say I, maybe not we, need to do a better job listening and not talking. So how do we do that um, in a way that encourages growth in wisdom and encourages discussion, especially, you know, with teens, um, while not just wanting them to think that whatever their opinion is, is just equally valid as any other opinion? If I could get that answer, <laughs> that would be great. I tend to talk too much myself. Uh, one thing I found in teaching online is a little challenging because you don't have as many cues when people are ready to speak or you, the rules are a little bit different. And it's very easy to talk over students or they, it's very easy for them to talk over each other without realizing it. And I, I have to really train myself to wait, to be okay with some silence to give kids a minute to process a question maybe or look something up. Um, but I find if I can generally 
use questions more than anything else to direct and guide to discovery and to the truth instead of telling them something that usually goes better. So in teaching, in teaching harder books, I'm just going to have knowledge that they don't have about the story. I'm just, I'm going to, and that's appropriate. So there's a lot of stuff that it's appropriate for me to tell them. But if I can find a way to ask a question about it instead of directly telling them, I think that's better. Um, I can find that I can monologue, especially if I get interested and passionate about something. And when it's not about maybe literature, maybe about something more important, you know, we've had a lot of political discussions and social discussions this week with the election and everything and theological discussions and metaphysical discussions. <laughs> um, you know, there's, it's easy for them to kind of go off on just what they think or believe. And so I always try to draw it back to loving our neighbor. So if we are spending too much time talking or too much time opining without considering why someone else might think the way they do or behave the way they do or act the way they do or have a reason for whatever it is we're discussing, to see something from the other's perspective, to ask questions about that, to consider the other side of any issue, to consider what, what might be going on that they might not know. I find if I can direct them toward thinking about those things, then maybe we can guide them to some wisdom, <laughs> some virtue. But it's hard, you know, we, we care about ourselves. Everyone, we're all the, I, I teach writing workshops and one of the things I tell people about writing characters, especially villains, is that every character, no matter who they are, is the hero in their own story. And that's true for life. We're all the hero in our own story. And if we can get out of that mentality a little bit and understand how someone else is the hero in their own story, then we can have a bit more understanding and compassion and can maybe slow down a little bit and think. Well, what would you say to maybe a homeschool parent who's listening to this and is like, wow, this sounds great, but I personally feel very underread and undereducated and I don't even know, you know, where to start to go equipping myself as a homeschool mom or a homeschool teacher. You know, how would you encourage that homeschool parent in kind of reclaiming their own education? Like, do you have a good place to start? Because, you know, we're also, we've been talking about limits. We're limited in time and energy and all the rest. That's a really good question. I actually get this question a lot because people are like, how do I start? And I'm like, you just, you start, just pick something, anything, um, which, you know, you mentioned, I, I run, I run some Facebook groups to help people read classics and community. So people are so intimidated by so many of these books. They seem so difficult. It's like, great, let's take the intimidation factor out. Let's read it together. And some of these I've never read before I started the group. I'm like we're all doing this together. I think if people are intimidated by not knowing where to start, it really depends on where your kids are, like what level. If they're younger, you know, find a good book list and just pick a book. Maybe you have a childhood favorite that you know is a really good book. You know, I'll never forget the day I handed my daughter Island of the Blue Dolphins, right? And she came back to me and brought it to me and was like, Mom, do you know about this book? And I was like, yeah, honey, that's why I gave it to you, right? Like, start, what, start with what you know. You don't have to go explore everything new. Start with what you know. And then find friends to read with you. If you can find friends to read with you, do it in community that's helpful, but you don't have to read everything. You don't have to, there's a lot that I don't know. There's a few things I know really well, <laughs> but it, I think we can get so overwhelmed by, I mean, I'm looking at all the books behind me. I've not read most of these, right? I want to, but I get really sometimes overwhelmed with, well, how do I pick? How do I pick one? You just pick one and you just start and you just ask questions. I think when they're older, it's a little more intimidating because, you know, we, we're scared by what we don't know. And we don't, we don't necessarily have to teach the books we don't know. Teach your favorites, teach good ones, or read it together, learn it, enjoy it together, figure it out together. Like there's no harm in that. That's what I'm doing with geometry right now. 
I don't know geometry, but we're learning it together and that's okay. So I think as homeschool parents, we have so much anxiety that we can really psych ourselves out into overthinking things. I do it all the time. So I know this is true. And I think if we can just take a deep breath and just relax for like two seconds and just calm down, that we'll be okay. We're really going to be fine. It's really going to be okay. I think I'm just going to like take that clip out of here and just like play that for myself. Like calm down. It's going to be yeah. fine. Well, Kristen, I am asking two questions to each of my guests here in season three. So speaking of books, you know, what are you personally reading lately? What am I personally reading? Um, I have been trying to finish Return of the King since August. <laughs> so I have been reading Return of the King. I feel like it's taking me as long as Sam and Frodo took to get through Mordor to finish this book. So I've been very, very slowly reading that. Um, but I've been reading a lot of different things. Uh, I teach classes. I'm in grad school. So I, I'm currently reading some of Canterbury Tales. I'm reading... Uh, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics for grad school, which is really difficult. So, you know, um, I have no idea what I'm reading. So I just keep plugging along. Uh, we're reading, I'm reading Joseph Pieper's Anthology. Let's see, what else am I reading? I'm reading Wendell Berry's Commonplace Essays. So a lot of reading I'm doing for grad school. Um, trying to think what else I have going on. And I'm always reading, I'm always reading bits and pieces of things to try to improve what I do as a homeschooler and a teacher. So I've been reading On Writing Well by William Zinser with my students. Uh, I've been reading How to Write a Sentence and How to Read One by Stanley Fish. I've been reading Know and Tell by Karen Glass. I've got several things that I want to be reading that I'm not, but that's what I'm actually reading at the moment. So just a real short, easy list. No big deal. Yeah, and it's not like I'm reading from all of these every day. I mean, most of these are for grad school. So like this week is Peeper's Anthology and Lord of the Rings and Canterbury Tales and How to Write a Sentence. <laughs> So, so it's, you know, I'm not a super voracious reader and I've turned into a slow reader. I read much more slowly than I used to. I think I pay a lot more attention than I used to. And I'm reading a lot for different reasons than um, just, you know, escapism or enjoyment. So the books I'm reading tend to be a little bit more time attentive and a little bit more difficult. You know, my husband is a very slow reader, and I tend to read very quickly. But what I notice is he retains every detail of what he has read. So the books that he has read, the list may be shorter, but he knows them more deeply. And so I want to take a little bit of that for myself. I think slow reading is something that I have undervalued in the past, but I'm beginning to value more now. I think... Um some of the things I'm reading, I'm reading for school. So I'm, I'm kind of in this mindset of I need to get something out of this and I can get caught up in that and not just enjoy the reading. So I'm trying to get a little bit better at just really enjoying and absorbing what I'm reading instead of like trying to decide, okay, what am I going to write about this? You know, and I, I want to make sure our students don't fall into that trap either. I can tell them, enjoy it, read it, have fun with it, right? Let's have, let's have a good time. Um, but I do take a lot of notes in my books. I, um, I do write in my books and highlight in my books. So I do do that a lot. So I always have to have my highlighters and my pencil with me. So, which makes bathtub reading kind of difficult. <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting. It makes me think like when you, you talk about ha have good listening habits, just an ordinary conversation with someone, you know, you're supposed to listen to understand, not listen in order to reply. So that probably applies too when we're reading, especially if it's like where we know there's going to be something we're supposed to produce afterwards. It can be hard to just listen first to understand as, as opposed to like, oh, what am I going to say about that the whole time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I need to listen a little bit more. <laughs> that, that seems to be a theme here. <laughs> 
Well, Kristen, what tips would you have for a homeschool mom whose day is just going completely off the rails? Send the kids outside, take a minute, collect yourself, and then when they come back in, apologize. Because my days never go off the rails. It's not like I ever have to do this, you know, this week whatsoever. Uh, Monday went off the rails. You know, um, I think it's, you know, the best parenting advice is to not get emotional, to be the adult and to not get emotional. And I don't, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> that is not my personality type whatsoever. Um, and so I find that I have to do a lot of apologizing um, that when I let my emotions get the best of me, but I found that usually it's when no one's moved their body enough or somebody needs a snack and a nap. I mean, something. So I usually it's, it's a move your body, you know, go outside, go take a walk, go sweep the deck off, go, go. When they were little, I actually would make them go around the house five times until they just had burned off some physical energy. And um, if they came back and I'm like, okay, just, you know, go play. Cause at this point you're not, nothing's getting done. You're not learning. Um, and we are embodied people. Like we live in bodies and I think we can get caught up, especially when they're older, we don't really play as much. They can get caught up in, you know, you've been sitting down doing math for an hour and a half. Maybe you need to like go move your body for, for five minutes cause they get kind of get fixated on it. Um, but I would say, yeah, go outside, send them outside, or you go outside, but take yourself a break. Think about what you've done and <laughs> go back and apologize to your children. Because usually when it goes off the rails, it's because I have lost my cool. I've gotten frustrated in some way and my kids deserve an apology and I've been in the wrong. And I found that apologizing and explaining, not as a way of excusing, but as explaining, I'm just frustrated and I took it out on you and I'm sorry. I found my kids to be so receptive to that and just doesn't make everything better, but usually it calms down whatever's going on. And there are some days when you just have to be done. And there are some days when you have to dig in and try again. So it's, it's a matter of, you know, intuition and knowing and making a mistake, <laughs> learning from it. But it, yeah, go outside, take a breath and apologize. That's usually what, what solves it. Such a good encouragement. Well, Kristen, where can people find you all around the internet? Oh, that's scary. <laughs> um, I have a website, so they can find about my classes and teaching and some of the writing that I've done um, at kristenrudd.com. Um, I have a little bit of writing at the Cersei Institute blog and a little bit of writing at the Center for Lit blog. Um, so I've got some writing there. Um, I'm on Facebook. I've got the groups I run on Facebook. You can find those there. And I'm on Twitter at Kristen Rudd. And I will have all of those things linked up in the show notes for this episode at humilityanddoxology.com. Thanks so much, Kristen, for joining me today. It was You're really welcome. fun. It was fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening in on this week's Homeschool Conversation. For show notes and links to all the resources we discussed, head to humilityanddoxology.com slash homeschool dash conversations. And if these episodes are an encouragement to you, would you take a moment to leave a rating and review and to share with your friends? I am so thankful that you are here on this adventure with me. Let's repent of our constant striving, relish the joy of learning, and rest in the work of Christ on our behalf. Stand fast, my friends.